Welcome everybody, my name is Mikhail Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians. Episode 19, Islamic History, Muhammad Before the Revelations. Muhammad, the man who some historians consider to be the most influential person in human history, got a very, very late start. Jesus did too. By ancient standards, 30 is pretty late, and he packed a thousand lifetimes into his last three years. But Muhammad didn't receive his first revelation until he was 40, starting an action-packed 12 years of ministry leading into his death. But what came before that? There is no grand nativity story or any hype surrounding his birth, although tradition places his birth in 570, the year of the elephant. See the previous podcasts on early Islamic legends for more on that. Muhammad came into the world without ceremony and without a father. Abdullah had died six months earlier. His mother, Amina, died when he was six. He then lived with his uncle, Abu Talib. In a standard Muslim history, we then jump to age 25 when he married Khadija, a wealthy woman 15 years his senior. We then jump ahead again to age 40 when he received his first revelations. There is little on Muhammad's first 40 years, not dissimilar to the pre-ministry days of Jesus. And what is there, it is really impossible to tell legend from fact from hagiography. Uh, hagiography is basically the construction of a saint's biography. This is true of pretty much all ancient figures, religious or not. Regardless of what you want to call it, there are a few good stories about Muhammad before his ministry. And here are my top five. Story number one, a very short nativity story for Muhammad. When I mentioned earlier there was no nativity story, that was only partially true. There is no great Matthew-style narrative of the birth of Muhammad, but the early histories do have one small detail regarding his birth. It's very Christian-sounding, actually, and it's a popular story rather than something Muslims would consider to be a historical fact. When Muhammad's mother was pregnant, she heard a voice say, You are pregnant with the master of this people, and when he is born, say, I put him in the care of the one God to protect him from evil of every envier. Call him Muhammad. And a light then radiated from her that showed the castles of Syria. Syria was a long way away, so I think the point was that it shined a very, very long distance. And that's it, really. There's also a story about Muhammad's father, who had extremely bright eyes on the day Muhammad was conceived, and also that he passed up numerous chances to sleep with other women just before that moment. The story set up that Muhammad's parents were people of great character, but that's about it for Muhammad's parents before he was born. Story number two, Bahira the Monk. Bahira was a Christian monk who lived in Syria. There are a few things to unpack here before we get to the actual story, because there are two things I assume are not general knowledge. First, what kind of Christian was Bahira? Most sources call him a Nestorian, but other traditions have him as a Mandian or some kind of Gnostic or some other sect. The key, the key here is that he was out of the mainstream and not a follower of anything the authorities would have considered to be proper Christianity. Of course, 
proper Christianity is in the eyes of the beholder. If you ever have a chance to take a course on early Christian heresies, I highly recommend it. You would be blown away how the slightest difference was treated with the greatest of importance. The Nestorian's great sin was a belief that Christ's two natures, the human and the divine, are separate. Most of the theological contortions of the early church would seem comical to Muslims because they were mostly about making Christ divine, but also maintaining that there is only one God. So you can see the landmines an Nestorian would be dancing around here. God is one, but also three. But one part of that divinity is both divine and human, and the divine and human parts are separate. It's much harder to have a unified Godhead if one of those heads is only half there. Ultimately, the church decided that Christ had to be singular, and Nestorians simply didn't fit that mold. He also could have been a Gnostic or something else, but I think the point in the story is that this was not an Orthodox Christian. That's Orthodox with a small O. The capital O Orthodox Church would not exist for a very long time after this. Second, that this took place in Syria is also very consequential. Up until the 20th to 21st century, Syria was, and arguably still is, one of the most diverse religious places on earth. It has always kind of straddled a unique border between Christian and Muslim, between Western Christianity, Eastern Christianity, and things long ago labeled heresies by the mainstream church. Syria also contains traditions and languages with direct ties to the first Christians. That this story would take place in Syria is wonderfully poetic. Okay, so the story. Bahira is a monk living in Syria. According to tradition, the story takes place in Busra, which is in the south of modern Syria. Muhammad was a preteen for this story, traveling with his uncle in a trade caravan. When the caravan passed by Bahira's cell, he invited the men for a dinner or a feast or something similar. Everyone went except for Muhammad who was the youngest, he was left to tend the camels. But Bahira insisted that everyone come, and began to notice miraculous things about this boy. This usually involves branches or clouds moving to keep him constantly shaded. Bahira predicted this boy would be a prophet, and instructed Abu Talib to protect him. Often this ends with the caravan turning back, due to Bahira's warning that Jews or Christians may try to kill Muhammad. So, to paint with a broad brush here, for Muslims, this is a Christian stamp of approval to the coming revelation. A monk who recognized Muhammad but knew that, to hide the truth, Christians and Jews would try to kill him. For Christians, the character of Bahira is a sign that Muhammad was misinformed from the start by Christian heretics. But really, it's probably not something to think about too hard. It's a cool story, no doubt, but it's not exactly Muslim gospel either. There is no official Muslim position on this story. Some believe it, some don't. Some great scholars only partially believe it, meaning certain parts may not be true. And the Muslim skeptics have a strong case, given that the narrators cannot trace this story back to someone who was actually there for it. It's hearsay of unknown origin, so it's not something you would place immense importance on. But again, it's a very cool story, and that's why I wanted to tell it. Story number three, El Amin, the Black Stone story. Most people know of the Kaaba, 
which is that giant cube in Mecca Muslims pray toward. But lesser known is the Black Stone, an ancient rock of unknown origin that has been at the Kaaba pretty much forever. Today, the Black Stone it isn't really a stone, but remaining fragments of the stone cemented together and fastened to the east end of the Kaaba. That stone has had a rough history, including being shattered by a catapult during a siege. But the important part for this story is that the stone is holy, to pagans then and to Muslims now. And in, Muhammad, in Muhammad's time, it was just a large, intact black rock. Five years before his first revelation, the Kaaba suffered some fire damage and underwent repairs. During this, the black rock was taken off of the Kaaba. So when it was time to put it back, the prominent clans began bickering about who would have the honor of placing it back on the Kaaba. By the way, I've never seen a version of this story that includes who removed the stone in the first place. Um, so they're arguing. And in walks Al-Amin. This was Muhammad's nickname at the time, and it means trustworthy. So Muhammad plays Solomon and tells all the clan leaders to place the rock on a cloth and that they would all hold the corners of the cloth and replace the rock together. I've always loved this story. You know, blessed are the peacemakers, right? And this was brilliant. This is a great preview for the rest of Muhammad's life, too. Being surrounded by bickering, petty, ignorant fools, and trying, sometimes successfully and sometimes in vain, to make them think a little harder and prod them toward a higher understanding. Story 4. Marriage to Khadijah at age 25, Muhammad married Khadija, a 40-year-old wealthy businesswoman. It was a marriage based on mutual respect, and after Khadija died, Muhammad would compare every woman he ever married to her. So it was a genuine relationship, even by modern standards, even if it might have seemed a bit odd to others in 7th century Arabia. Um, given Muhammad's tumultuous early years, I don't, I don't think Sigmund Freud would have found it that odd, however. So it's a happy marriage, and Khadija, despite her age, actually bears children. But the benefit to Muhammad was much more than that. Muhammad's financial situation improved distinctly by marrying Khadija, and his uncle, Abu Talib, even kicked in a dowry. It seems ridiculous under the circumstances, but Muhammad was a man, and Khadija was a woman. Okay, so this security gave him a bit more free time which becomes critical when he finally receives his first revelation in the cave of Hira. That was not his first time in a cave. He spent days on end basically listening for God. If you're going to do that, it really helps to have a patron and a wife who understands. I would have a hard time saying, bye, honey, I'm going to sit in a cave for a week. Don't wait up. But Khadija understood, and that made all the difference. Story number five, Khadijah's cousin and the apostle tree. This story actually starts before Muhammad married Khadijah, but after they had already met. At the time, Muhammad was her employee, and she paid him a great deal of money to take a caravan to Syria. Muhammad would go with a man named Mesara. This was important because everything Khadijah would later hear would come from him. 
and Maysara's reports regarding Muhammad are what made her fall for Muhammad in the first place. At some point in Syria, Muhammad stopped to sit under a tree near a monk's cell. In Islamic lore, doesn't it kind of seem like Syria is nothing more than a series of monks looking for holy men? Anyway, a monk tells Maysara that no one, other than a prophet, had ever sat beneath that tree. This is a story that begs for follow-up, but I haven't found it. How did the monk know that? Which prophets had sat under that tree before? There is no information on that. But Maysara would later relay this episode to Khadijah, who would seek out someone who would know something about the subject. So Khadijah tells this to her cousin, Waraka. Islamic sources claim Waraka was a Christian priest, although what this actually meant in a town like Mecca is pretty unclear. He was probably an Ebionite, which I'll explain in a second. Just remember, if you study early Islam, especially as a Christian, it really helps to know your heresies. This area was full of heretics that would have been in major trouble up north in Rome or Byzantium. And I believe Warica was one of those. So what is an Ebionite? I'm not sure how many people are familiar with Messianic Jews, but a Messianic Jew is basically a Christian who retains the original Jewish customs and general Jewishness that Paul discarded as he preached to the Gentiles. Ebionites are kind of like that, but with one critical difference. They do not, or did not, depending on whether they're still around, I don't think they are, they do not believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. In Ebionite belief, Paul was an apostate, and you can see what kind of belief would develop without Paul. Christianity would look much, much more Jewish, and Waraka was one of these guys. Maybe. There's really no way to know for sure. But he confirmed to Khadijah that Muhammad was going to be a prophet, and he was really, really excited about it. He was also a poet, so some of his excitement survives. This is part of the hopeful poem Waraka wrote, translated from the Arabic in uh, Oxford's Life of Muhammad. I persevered and was persistent in remembering, an anxiety which often evoked tears, and confirmatory evidence kept coming from Khadijah. Long have I had to wait, O Khadijah, in the veil of Mecca in spite of my hope, that I might see the outcome of thy words. I could not bear that the words of the monk you told me of should prove false, that Muhammad should rule over us, overcoming those who would oppose him, and that a glorious light should appear in the land to preserve men from disorders. His enemies shall meet disaster, and his friends shall be victorious. Would that I might be there to see, for I should be the first of his supporters joining in that which Quraysh hate, however loud they shout in that Mecca of theirs. I hope to ascend through him whom they all dislike, to the Lord of the throne through they are cast down. Is it folly not to disbelieve in him, who chose him, who raised the starry heights? If they and I live, things will be done, which will throw the unbelievers into confusion. And if I die, tis but the fate of mortals to suffer death and disillusion. Waraka never did live to see this, 
dying in the first year of Muhammad's prophethood. Um, but you could hear the hope in his voice, this idea, which seems kind of strange for someone who professed to be a Christian, that another prophet would come and lead these people by that. I assume he means the Arabs. Um, so Muhammad's first revelation, that's where we'll pick up next in Islamic history. Muhammad in the cave of Hira receiving his first revelations. Thank you. And I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.